that you've broken every chain that held us. We thank you, Jesus, that you paid a debt that we could never pay. We thank you, Jesus, that your blood made a new living way whereby we can enter into the very throne room, the presence of our Heavenly Father, God Almighty. And Father, we thank you today for the presence of your Holy Spirit in this place. Holy Spirit, we give you full access to our lives. You are the counselor. You are the comforter. You are the one that leads us from a place of confusion into a place of truth. You are the one that holds us up, the standby, the one that comes alongside us to help us. You, Holy Spirit, are the very presence, power, and person of God within us. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, we thank you today. As your word is spoken, open our hearts, open our eyes, that we would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ Jesus, that we might live this life, that we might be all that you've called us to be, and so that the word might be fulfilled as he is in heaven. So are we in this world. Lord, we ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's give Jesus another shout and praise in this place. You can be seated and let's again thank our musicians today. What a great, great time we're having together in his presence. Last week we began to look at Acts chapter 2, at how the church began, how the church was birthed. And we're going to continue on in that way today, and we're going to look a little into it. And last week we, we looked at the 50 days prior to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the upper room to give a true picture, a true background, and a correct context for us to understand what was happening on the day of Pentecost. The disciples, prior to the outpouring in Jerusalem in that upper room, had seen terrific and horrific events take place. They never thought that they were going to walk the road that they walked, but walk it they did. They saw the worst of the world around them crucify the Christ that they loved, and also they saw the horrors of a world within them as they fled in terror under the pressure and the darkness of the night as Jesus was taken by the hands of sinful men and murdered and buried in the tomb. This was the background. This was the setting. This was the context and the color of it all that led them to that great day in that upper room, the day of Pentecost, that Jesus had promised would occur when the Holy Spirit would come in power 
to enable them to be everything that Christ had pointed them toward, everything that Christ had taught them, everything that Christ Jesus had exampled in his ministry. The moment had come where they would be in an upper room waiting for the promised Holy Spirit and the arrival of the Holy Spirit, not just in the room, but in their hearts and in their lives would enable them to be everything that Jesus had called them to be. Jesus had said, without me, you can do nothing. And of course, we know that we can do a lot of things. But really, things of significance and things that matter and things that usher his kingdom forward without the king within us, we can do nothing. We can do a lot of things that that we want to do, but it won't have God's stamp or hand on it. And relatively speaking, it will achieve nothing in relation to what God wants to do with our lives. These men had seen things that they never thought that they would see. In their mind's eye, they had an understanding of what the Messiah should be like. They understood the Messiah to fulfill all of the traditions and all of the expectations that former generations had put and placed and pictured him to be. That Messiah was a political figure, a ruler that would reign and rule by force and aggression, driving back all of the the, the, the Roman oppression that had colonized their country. The Messiah would come and set them free. The Messiah would come and set up his new kingdom, but it would be by force, it would be by aggression, and it would be by this outward demonstration of a conquering king. That was their expectation. That was their dream, to follow Jesus through Jerusalem victoriously as conquering king. And yet all of those expectations, all of those hopes and dreams and aspirations that they held in their heart were were dashed and defeated as the king, the Messiah, the conqueror was conquered, nailed to a cross and buried in a grave. Why do you think that these men argued and jostled for position? I want to be on your right hand. I want to be on your left hand. No, I'm going to be the greatest. You're going to be the least. Why was all of this backbiting and jockeying for position among them? Because their idea and their ideals and their values of the king that would come rewarded strength and not weakness. Honored prominence and not hiddenness. Oh, but they were in the presence of a very different king of a very different kingdom. They had grown accustomed to the world in which they lived and they had drawn their values from it. But the king among them, on the night that he was about to be betrayed, got on his knees and demonstrated this strange kingdom that he had come to deliver to this earth. He got on his knees and he tenderly took their feet and gently washed them. And there was protests around the room and arguing and misunderstanding and confusion. 
And yet he went on through and washed their feet as the servant king, not the subjugator, not the oppressor, not the aggressor, but the servant king, demonstrating a very different kingdom. They had their ideas of a political figure, a messianic ruler of an army, much like Alexander the Great. One historian writing of Alexander the Great say, said that there came a day in his life when he called all of his generals and leaders together and sat them down. Only the elite were present in the room. Those who oversaw his vast armies, those who oversaw his orders, they sat with him as this man before them had brought kingdoms and kings to his submission. He openly cried in despair before his generals and his leaders. He cried, this great man, Alexander the Great, cried because there were no more territories to take. He'd extended the empire of Rome like no other. He'd reached the ultimate in power, the ultimate in control. Riches and reputation he'd gained unlike any before him. And yet now... Head in hands, in despair, there was nothing more to do. At the same time, as crying openly before his generals, his body was wasting away. History tells us this. Because of the sexually transmitted diseases that he'd caught through the unquenchable lust of his flesh. History records that though he conquered kingdoms, Though he subjugated kings, he couldn't conquer his own inner private world that raged out of control. He was its slave, and there was nothing more to do, nowhere to go. In stark contrast to this, Jesus, Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, gathered his men, young men, not generals or leaders, uneducated men, what the Bible calls the foolish things of the world. And he pulled them together in a room and he sat them down. And this wasn't a room where they were strategizing. This wasn't a war room where they were planning. He sat them down. And do you know what he did? He had supper with them. He had a meal. Food on the table. Terrific events about to take place in his life. Knowing that the enemy, the... the, 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 the the evil one of this world had been given his moment now of opportunity to come. Jesus, knowing that his hour for which he had come into this world had arrived. So many things colliding and conflicting. 
so many mishaps having to deal with, and yet the Lord, Lord of circumstance, Lord of attitude, Lord of all thought, Savior Christ the King sits at the table and has food. Not panicking, racking his brains, pacing the floor, wondering what to do. The Prince of Peace is in the room, ready for whatever, ready for the forward walk that he would take towards the fulfillment of God's plan and destiny for his life. Two leaders that history notes, one as being great, the other as being the Savior, the Messiah of the world. Jesus, unlike Alexander the Great, outlined the priorities of his new kingdom to those disciples that were in that room with him on this night. He was about to say things in this room around the table that he had never said before. He was about to say things over three or four chapters. You can read about it in John chapter 13 and on. Three chapters about the conversations that he had privately in that room with his disciples. He was setting out his expectations, his direction, his requirement for this new kingdom life that they were privileged to come into. John chapter 13, verse 34 to verse 35. Jesus had reserved this revelation for this very moment. This was not for the hustle and the bustle and the noise of the world through which he walked. This was for a private moment. Just 12 young men giving them a secret, the treasure. These weren't just words. This was the very revelation, the very heart of God that we've sung about this morning. Jesus said this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. History records Alexander the Great as being great, great for his murder, great for his violence, great for his brute force, great for overthrowing kingdoms and nations and continents, great for all of the wrong reasons. However, the Bible notes Jesus of a different spirit, of a different kingdom, of a different set of values and ideals from heaven. By this, all men 
will know that you are my disciples if you love one another as I have loved you. Maybe their minds went back over the last three years in which they'd walked closely to Jesus. And they looked at how his heart broke open when he saw multitudes of people. He didn't ignore the need. He ran straight into it and began to teach them and heal them and deliver them. His heart burning with compassion to alleviate people of their needs of life. Maybe they thought of all of the miracles and how he extended his love and demonstrated it so visibly and actively outside of the perimeters of the religious walls of the synagogue. Maybe their minds raced back and began to think about how his love had extended and reached beyond every border and culture and civilization. As I have loved you, love one another. But even as they thought, these disciples, they could never imagine how his love was about to be de demonstrated for them in the way in which it was as they went forward into a future that they had no idea about. For to look back in the ministry of Jesus and to see all of the wonderful miracles that he did for people, how he extended his love so selflessly, that's one thing. But to see him hang on a cross and be beaten and mocked and whipped and scourged, and, his, and his, his very garments be divided and gambled. And they hurled abuse, and a whole demonic realm bearing down on him, and God himself even turning away and judging him as sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. They never even imagined that level of love would ever come their way. But come it did. His love, his mercy knows no border. His love, his mercy goes beyond all horizons. And they saw it and they experienced it and they embraced it. Jesus, John chapter 15 verse 12, talking about this love. In the same room on that night, said, said, greater love has no man than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. To lay down your life. This is the love that he was calling them to. Not to take up their life, not to take up their rights, but to lay them down. And this is where it gets really interesting. Not just simply to lay them down to him. We've sung it this morning, sounding so sweet, and we've prayed it. All to Jesus I surrender. It's easy. It's easy to sing it, and it's easy to surrender to him. But what about when you've got to surrender to your sister and your brother next to you? Now, that's a whole different level of love. It really is. 
a whole different level to submit. Paul would later talk to the church, the Philippians church, and he said this, talking about the manifestation and the practicals of this reality of power of love within them. He said, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. But in lowliness of mind, consider others better than yourself. Oh, this is the love. This is the power that we're talking about. The Holy Spirit came in the noise of a violent rushing wind, and we never hear of that, that manifestation happening again in the New Testament church. They didn't need a violent rushing wind to follow him, follow them around. They needed to be impregnated in their spirit by this unconditional love that they had received from Jesus. That as he had loved them, they now were to love one another in the same vein. That's the miracle of the Holy Spirit living in our lives. And this, let me just say this. This love just doesn't put up with anything. No. No, this love just doesn't accept any lifestyle. Contrary to what the world might think. And contrary to what some would believe. No, this world, this this. This love will get down on its knees and it will remove your sandals and it will tenderly wash your feet and it will be gentle. Oh, what wonderful love that is when we receive the gentleness of God in our lives and he washes our feet. Oh, it's wonderful, isn't it? To recline on his breast, the one that loves Jesus and to be noted for that that wonderful union with him. But what about the love that comes brighter than the noonday sun and strikes a man off his horse into the dust and blinds him for three days and then takes him off into a wilderness for three years to straighten him out? What about that love? What about that love? What about Hebrews where in, in Hebrews 12, where it talks about the very expression of fatherly love is not just accepting anything that we dish up to him, but embracing us and disciplining us because he loves us. And it actually says, it actually talks about in Hebrews 12, it says about being scourged. By God. Would God scourge you? I'd never dare say it unless it was in the Bible. But I remember a period in my life, and I'm not pointing the finger at you, I'm talking about me. I, I remember a period in my life, and I was out in the car park, driving a little white Peugeot, and I thought, I had this idea come into my mind. I thought it was my idea, but I didn't realize that it was the Holy Spirit behind it. I printed out Hebrews 12, and I thought every day, back and forth to work, I'm going to learn that. I'm, I'm going to be able to remember it, meditate on it, and be able to quote it. And I went home, and I, as I was driving, I was looking at the line and trying to say it out loud to, re, to remind myself of this great word that I thought 
I wanted to remember. The next day I realized that God wasn't interested in me meditating upon it or even remembering it. He wanted me to live it. And he wanted to show me that he loved me by the disciplining hand on my life. He scourged me for 10 months. Every thought, every motive, hard, difficult. And, and it was, it was I, I got to a place of despair. So hard, so difficult. This wasn't love washing my feet. This was love taking hold of me by the scruff of the neck and saying, now come on, Edwards. There's motives in your heart. There's things hidden inside you and they're not a part of my kingdom. They're part of your kingdom. And I, I don't know, maybe it was a wrestle. It was hard, painful. I cried. And I remember talking to a, to a vicar from the Church of England, the Church of Wales. And it just, you know, sometimes when you're going through things, that's all you can talk about because that's all you are. And I just started pouring out this stuff to him. And he said, talking about the discipline of God in Hebrews 12. And I said, I'm holding on to one verse in that chapter. That when it's all said and done, it says this, and this is the promise for the discipline of God when it begins to work in your life. It's this, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I said, I'm holding on for that peaceable fruit of righteousness to be wrought in my life through this scourging, through this love that I've never experienced before. And he said this to me, he said, son... The peace will come. The peace will come. Ten months happened. One day, I think it was a Wednesday. Day was as normal, hard, God scourging, searching. My, my motives were bare. Oh, my goodness. Heavy hearted. Because I, you see, I, I couldn't go forward. I was powerless to overcome the powers within me. I read you a piece of history about Alexander the Great, not so that we can look back and criticize him or judge him, because the very same power that drove him into what he did and the error of his ways is a power that works within us without Christ to subdue it. And suddenly, in the room, peace came. I picked Faye up from TSB. I said, Faye, you're never going to guess what. What, she said. Now, you know, you can't hide it from your wife. Ten months, day and night, and I'm talking day and night, man. Day and night, bearing down, heavy, hard. All of God I said, God, I said, you're never going to get what? Guess what, Faith? What? Today, peace came in to the room. And I know that 
There's going to be times in the future where that love again is going to come like a scourge, like a whip, correcting and redirecting. But after 10 months, oh, to have peace. I tell you now, you value peace when you haven't had it for 10 months. You value the Prince of Peace and you hold on to him and you beg that he never leaves. When you've just been working and trying to go forward in your own strength and battling with your own sin, battling with your own emotions and your own uh, intentions and motives, you value the king when, when you desperately need him and he's off the scene for 10 months. He's in your heart, of course, but the season changes. She said, that's wonderful. Now, to finish this story and to, to, to really put the cherry on the cake, I had given Mark Gibbons my telephone number three years before. Like good pastors do. You see, I gave him my number thinking that I'd be a pastor to Mark. Little did I know that Mark one day would be the pastor to me. That's how it works. That's how it works. So Mark never troubled me. Mark never called me, never. But on this one day, the phone rings. I pick the phone up. I'm just happy to have peace. I'm just happy to be in a new season. How are you, Dio? Who's this? Mark. Hey, Mark, how are you? Di, I got a word for you. I said, what word would that be, Mark? One word, Di. Go on, Mark. Peace, he said. Peace. You see, when the word of God comes in a timely moment, it is sweet. It is sweet. There's nothing like an encounter of the Holy Spirit and it can be hidden, it can be private, but you know that God is speaking and it's a miracle of heaven right into your heart. No, this love, this love just doesn't tolerate what I think is acceptable. This love is going to take my life and your life into, into depths that you would never want to go. And every, every point of decision that this love will bring you to, you will have to decide, as will I, am I going to continue to carry my cross and follow on? It really is as radical and as dramatic as that. They were to love one another as he had loved them. Philippians 2, verse 7 to 11, talking about this wonderful love that holds onto no position, talking about this wonderful love that's willing to be completely debased and empty. It says this, but Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant or slave and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself. You see, love can do that. Very often, I found in my life 
that I want to stand up. Very often in my life, I found that my tendency and my nature would want to take control, would want to hold on and grab. But this is not the spirit of the kingdom. This is not the spirit and the way of Jesus. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on the earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Come on, let's give him praise. He deserves the name above every name. He really does. It's him that deserves the name. There are many names in history, but there is only one name in eternity that will be praised and elevated and exalted in heaven, earth, and even under it. And every living being that has ever existed in this world and beyond this world will declare, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And let every devil in hell know it, church. Let every devil in hell hear it. Jesus, Jesus. Hallelujah. Jesus, we praise you. We bow to you. Let our attitudes bow to him. Let our thoughts and our imaginations and views of one another fall to the ground and let his spirit and let his word be supreme. These men, these men, had seen things they never thought they would see. They'd seen a bloody brow of a man asking for help. The one moment, pray with me for one hour. And they did what we would all do and have all done when the Spirit has come to us trying to lay his heavy heart on our heart. They went to sleep. And it's good that it's in there. It's good that we see it. It's good that we acknowledge it. It's good that we have no confidence in who we think we are in the church or how long we think we've been saved. No, we can rise above nothing other than that sleep. And anything that can be done through us or with us is as a result of the Holy Spirit enabling us to do what he's called us to do. They saw incredible change. Change they never thought that they would see. Extremes. The extreme of suffering. The extreme of death. The extreme and the suddenness of resurrection. 
And Jesus fulfilling everything that he had declared he would do and he would be. Not by the power of the sword, not by conquest, not by overthrowing kings and kingdoms like Alexander the Great. No, by following the will of the Father who sent him. Prior to the crucifixion on this night where Jesus spoke privately to these men in that room, Thomas had asked the question, Lord, have you ever asked this question? Lord, show us the way. Little did he know he was about to see the way. He thought looking back that Jesus had walked in a way that his, his future would be determined by. But little did he know that he was about to walk away with the Christ, that he never envisaged he would see Jesus in all of his sufferings, buried in the grave, raised to new life. Show us the way. And then waiting in an upper room, this way would break out inside of them. This way would enable them to go to the ends of their world and to a waiting city that had crucified the Christ but months before and forgotten about him. Show us the way, Jesus said. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And they saw that way. And they had to go that way. They didn't like that way. But Jesus had said to them, listen boys. No servant is greater than his teacher. Now as your teacher, I am exampling a way. Do as I am doing to you with one another. Walk in this way. I'm going to ask James to come. We're going to close in a few moments. Alexander the Great by the spirit of this world thought that greatness and conquest and victory was done achieved by the arm of the flesh by aggression oh he achieved greatness in the eyes of his peers in the eyes of the onlooking world and yet he was brought to ruin. Jesus had said years before. If you want to be great, you have to become the least. If you set out to become great, you will become the weakest and the least. Jesus had become the least. Love had enabled him. 
empowered him, framed every thought, every word, every action. Love personified for the first time in a world that was so hostile, in a world that was so dark, in a world that was reaching from the broken past and the broken ideals and ideas of men. And now the Son of God says that this is how all men might know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. You'll not be known for your great preaching, boys. You'll not be known. You're uneducated for your great knowledge. You'll not be known even for the miracles that I'm going to perform and he did through your hands. The standard is this love with which I have loved you. Let it permeate your lives. Stop the jockeying for position. Stop the envying. Stop the backbiting and the bitterness. And just love one another as I have loved you. And just wait and see what this world will view and remark about. The priorities as I see it of Jesus in the final moments of his ministry and life were in two areas. He was there to give them a new command. And that new command was, as we've read in John chapter 13, as I have loved you, love one another. The second priority of importance that was reserved for this final moment and was reserved to launch them into their world as when Christ ascended, they would go, was a new commission. Acts chapter 2 tells us of this. Or Acts chapter 1, sorry, Acts chapter 1 verse 8 tells us that they were going to receive power. You see, because this new commandment and this new commission, they were unable to do in and of themselves. They were unable to achieve without the power and the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit did not come on the day of Pentecost for a big magic show so that everybody could go back and forth and up a room and say, oh, so this is where he did it. No, the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost to baptize them with the same love and the same anointing that had empowered Jesus because Jesus had said, said to them, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you into this world. And he wasn't going to send his disciples ill-equipped. They were going to have the same anointing, the same love, the same power, the same life to do everything that he'd called them to do in the world in which they lived. Acts chapter 2 shows us. You can read it. They were in one place. That was a good thing. That was a positive thing. One place. Because all of them had scattered when the trouble hit. But now, 
after receiving instruction from Jesus over 40 days about the kingdom, they were in one place. But you know what? To be in one place is not good enough. It's not. They had to be in one accord, not just in one place. And to be in one accord, the Spirit had to move in their heart and they had to begin to enact this love that Jesus had directed them to walk in. Love one another as I have loved you. Love one another as I have loved you. But is he going to be greater than me? Love one another as I have loved you. And as they came together in one place, in one accord, the Holy Spirit came and empowered them. Finally, I'm going to ask the musicians to come. Finally, in Acts chapter 2, verse 46 to verse 47, the Holy Spirit moves across this city. Peter I tell you now, you read the words of Peter and the preaching of Peter in Jerusalem. Man, he goes in hard, strong, unashamed. Now, it's important to note he never preached a message like that again. So he wasn't an angry man. But if you're running towards a cliff at 100 miles an hour, and I'm on the journey and I know what's ahead of you. Forgive me if I get a bit passionate and tell you to turn around. Forgive me if I get in your face and say this is not good enough. Is that love? Of course it is. And it's order. It's order. It's the gentleness and the sternness of God that brings life, brings life. Acts chapter 2, verse 46 to verse 47 says this, and this was the fruit of the Holy Spirit's work among them. So continually, so continuing daily with one accord, in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. They met in large gatherings just like this, they praised God. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They fellowshiped steadfastly one with another. And then, simultaneously to this supernatural outpouring, it wasn't an instruction from the apostles. They just wanted to meet together in their homes to break bread and celebrate what Jesus had done. And they did. And they did in their thousands. And as a result of that pattern and that order and that outpouring, the Bible says that the, the next time Peter and John arrive in Jerusalem, we pick up in Acts chapter 3, the Lord had added 5,000. 
daily, daily. And then it goes beyond number as the church is multiplied. Beyond number. Amen. Amen. Father, I thank you today for your people. Lord, I thank you with an open heart. We've received your word. We thank you, Jesus, for the soil of the heart, for the seeds that have been sown by your spirit from your word. And Holy Spirit, again, we pray afresh that you would lead us and guide us and instruct us and be our teacher and bring us into this wonderful truth, this wonderful dimension whereby as we have been loved, we would love one another. And all God's people said, amen. Come on, church, let's give Jesus a shout of praise. Why don't you just stand to your feet and give him praise in this place? We're going to sing. Hallelujah. We praise you and thank you, Jesus. We honor your name, Lord. Come on, church.